Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Folks, welcome back to the show. This is your host, Pat Flynn. Today is the segment Ask the Ethicist, and we have our resident bioethicist, Peter Koch, joining us again. Peter, thanks, hey, for, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> we, we don't need to, uh, to hide anything. We've been sitting here chatting for like a good half hour before, just, just catching up and, and using things. And um, we decided, all right, well, enough is enough. We'll just hit record and, and start getting stuff on tape. And you said that you've been, um, as, as philosophers often do, contemplating that deep and important question of death. That's, that sounds like a, a lively note to, to begin upon. <laughs> yeah, a little depressing, but it doesn't have to be. Um, yeah, because we were talking about before, we hit record we're just like what are what are some topics and ethics that have that come up and uh one of the ones that I was kind of uh reading on earlier today was whether or not death is bad for you mm-hmm. the classic puzzle is is the um is kind of stated succinctly by epicurus and the general idea is if there's no afterlife um and death is supposed to be bad for you, then how can your death be bad for you if you cease to exist upon death? Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, everyone thinks death is like the worst thing will happen to you. But on the other hand, if you cease to exist upon death, then you never experience your own death and death cannot be bad for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so- Socrates sort of, sort of echoed that sentiment at one point as well, didn't he? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a really, it's an interesting puzzle because a lot of what, I mean, take in the hospital, for example, a lot of uh, decisions are made around either the avoidance or of death or, for example, in euthanasia, death being a benefit. Um, but it's hard to see how death could be a benefit if you're not there for the benefit. Usually, uh, if you're going to say that your life goes better, you better be around for your life to go better. Yeah, yeah, unless, unless death is... Uh, <laughs> Unless euthanasia is is ushering you off to to more exotic pastures, um, than <laughs> greener, greener pastures. <laughs> yeah, if, if you if you have an afterlife, then these problems don't exist. Other problems might exist, but not these particular ones. But if you don't, then you got some questions. I mean, one of the, one of the uh, one of the big ones, like kind of a sub problem that comes up is the timing problem about when is death a harm or when is death bad for you? Mm-hmm. So some people argue that it's bad for you after death. First you can make, try to make that work in different ways. Other people argue that there's no particular time when death is bad for you. Um, <laughs> it's really, it's, it's complicated as you can see, you know, it, it, it is complicated, but it always, for me, it always goes back to like, why, can you really separate it's like the epistemological question right can you really separate the epistemological from the metaphysical and can you really separate the ethical from the metaphysical well um so what do, in this case what do you what do you mean by the ethical from the metaphysical in other words can we separate what actually exists in the world at a metaphysical level like afterlife etc from the way that we treat people, like that sort of thing. Well, yeah, for me, so I mean, for the like the epistemological, right? The, the classic, and we were talking about this before. One of the you know difficulties with naturalism is, you know, if if our rational faculties are only arising from irrational means, then do we really have any reason to trust that we actually have rational faculties? And we, we kind of get caught in this sort of self perpetuating skepticism. Um, but, however, if our rational faculties have arisen from rational means, um, then, then maybe they're generally reliable. So you, you kind of have to consider the metaphysical questions, I think, if you really want to, to have a, a consistent channel for epistemology. I, and, and for me, it seems similar with, with ethics because we're considering, you know, we are considering how we would answer these questions would, would vary hugely on whether or not we think that only physical things exist or, or are we perhaps going somewhere after this? And so 
my inclination when these things get up is like, well, let's, let's like try and back up a bit and like think about that afterlife question because that's, that's going to really change things, at least for me. But I guess, you know, for you and in academia and hospitals, obviously not everyone's coming from a religious point of view or even especially the same religious point of view. So I guess that's a problem in and of itself. But, you know, putting aside any, I guess, uh, you know, secular bias, how do you feel about that? Like just kind of just like segmenting the, the two. Because, I mean, at least for Aquinas, it didn't seem like he separated his ethics from his metaphysics. Like his ethics was directly grounded in his metaphysics, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it is... You, you cannot really make sense of just you, you uh, essentially you can't only work for example in epistemology epistemology and ignore metaphysics and like what it means to be a human being etc mm-hmm. what what the world is made of and all that stuff all these fields overlap and even the distinction between fields can get pretty you know fuzzy at times mm-hmm. like a a philosopher, even though maybe someone's trained to be a metaphysician, they, of course, have, have to have these other fields in mind as they're navigating through. And some philosophers are so comprehensive that they can are really like a philosopher in the true sense, like this really broad pulling in all these pieces together, like Socrates, Aristotle, um, Aquinas, etc. you know? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that you can really do philosophy, so to speak, focusing just on one field and ignoring all the others. I don't think that's what the philosopher really is. Uh, but, but yeah, going back to the, the other question of like how, how to deal with all these different perspectives in a hospital when some people believe in afterlife, others don't. Some people might believe in reincarnation. Uh, some people believe that suffering is a part of life, that's necessary. You do have all these varying perspectives and um, it re- like they really become manifest at end-of-life decisions. That's why the whole death thing is so important because that's when people's values really come out and their view of what death is and how that fits into life becomes the most sort of salient. So hmm, I'm trying to think of, of how best to to approach this then. So, um, so, uh, well, first off, I guess if you were, if you were in charge, if Peter Koch were in charge of everything, um, <laughs> how would you propose that, that people go about making ethical decisions and, and thinking, well, let's, yeah, let's stay on death or thinking about death. Um, well, there, so there are kind of two two distinct questions, ethics of it, and then thinking about death. Because on the one hand, thinking about death is just like a, a conceptual thing. Like, you know, what it, what is death? Um, how might our well-being fluctuate, you know, well-dying death and then afterwards? Um, and then there's a the question of how do we weigh your well-being or, or your value etc and that those are the ethics questions so like one is like what the actual value well-being what death is all that stuff Mm -hmm. um and then there's the weighing of it all so um if i had to say how should you think about death that's a good one i mean from a so there's there's also like different ways of approaching it from like an institutional standpoint Probably a sort of the way that a, a liberal system is run where people are allowed to have their own sort of perspectives and match their perspectives within like a reasonable range of perspectives, you know, um, match their perspectives with their means of obtaining certain ends. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of, like I said, sort of a liberal society. Um, but I think the most important thing would be like making sure people have properly reflected on what death means to them and what dying in the period before death means to them and how they can fit the pieces of their life together in a cohesive way. So that like idea of cohesiveness is more important than 
you know, particular ethical principles. Hmm. 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 At least if I were running a, if I were running a, a really like big, you know, place, which is kind of how a lot of places I run. Yeah. So I want to go back to the, to the Socrates thing. Cause I remember back when I was in the ethics class that, that I was, I was taking when, when this brought up, I forget exactly how Socrates was. It was before he was about to, to, you know, um, swallow poison, right? Mm-hmm. And um, he gives his 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 little, I guess, eulogy. You could call it. He's like, "Hey, you know, screw you guys because you know you're just there's there's only two possibilities here. You're either you know taking me out of the pain of this world and and nothing after that. So thanks, suckers, or you're mm-hmm. ushering me off to a better place, right? That's kind of the yeah <laughs> the, yeah, yeah. The, the gist of it. <laughs> Obviously, not in not he didn't say it so eloquently as I did, but. <laughs> Um, and I remember the, proposing to the teacher, I'm like, well, that seems like kind of a false dilemma because it, it seems like there could at least logically possibly be some other alternatives there. Like maybe he could also reincarnate as a corn snake and that isn't so great. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Or perhaps he could be going off to another place, but maybe that other place also isn't so great for other reasons. So, you know, he, he kind of gives us two options, but I think there's some room between the horns in, in Socrates' um, field there. And there was no res- no response to <laughs> what I said to that. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Cause I mean, that's, it's also, cause I said before, you know, like as long as people are reflective about what death is. And I think, you know, the way that we're kind of wired, if you're, if you're well enough, um, uh, equipped to think about these things, then people will end up with a range of views that's generally, I think, probably fairly reasonable. Um, and but it is a range of views; it's not just one or the other, you know. Uh, there was a there, study that was done recently. You probably are familiar with it. The um, what is the terrible long term they came up with it? Moralistic therapeutic deism. You know what I'm talking about? No, moralistic therapeutic deism. So the study I, I went to assess what people's kind of general religious belief is, and even people who identified with a specific creed, um, you know, Christian um, um, or, or, or otherwise, or even people who were, who were brought up in non-religious households, even atheist households, they found that the common denominator for people, and you probably, I'm sure, have dug into some research or know yourself and maybe can affirm this. I'll, I'll look up the study and, and, and link to it, but I've, I've heard a few people uh, talking about it recently, is that uh, people sort of generally believe in this sort of um, um, therapeutic moralistic deism. And, and the gist of it is that they, they believe God exists, but he's relatively in, uh, kind of a deistic God. He's kind of a hands-off type of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and that so long as if you're just a good person, meaning like you're not Hitler, like, so their mm-hmm. idea of good is very, very vague, then you will go to heaven. And that's pretty much, pretty much people's beliefs, at least in, in, in I think this was, was a, an American study. Is that, mm-hmm. is that, um, yeah, no, that's sounds... able to affirm that. Uh, so I, I can't give you any numbers, but I know that, um, huge huge majority i want to say it's like i want to say it's like close to 90 percent of people believe in um broadly like a timeless universal spirit that we're like the traditional idea of god would be like a sub category of that mm, mm-hmm. so like yeah. most people believe in like the supernatural in some sense um and usually like a single entity that is of like that is god Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people think that there's a huge framework for like what it means to be good. And a lot of people think that the, this is not it, that there's life after death. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I know like the, um, that I can't remember the phrase in the use, but like the uh, universal spirit or something like that as a broadest. Sure, a little bit of life force going on. Yeah, like life or something like that is like nine out of ten or something. <laughs> well, the the funny thing that because um, people like, oh, I I did some research on this, and they're like, especially in, in other countries, it start to become less religious, and they're like, oh, look, they're becoming more atheistic. If you then run surveys to ask if they believe in a life force, it it inverses the people who are beco- who drop religion. Just they really just pick up paganism is what seems to happen. 
Yeah. They don't become atheists. They just become pagans. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. No, it's a rejection of organized religion that just, it doesn't shift towards like a rejection of the idea of God or a rejection of like a, a life that has meaning beyond the world in front of us. It just goes to, it, we're a super pagan culture. Yeah, and, and so I would argue it's just like, you're not becoming more religiously sophisticated at that point. You're becoming, <laughs> it's less. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, it's like everyone has to kind of, we just have to like refigure things out over and over and over, you know? Generation, so I, generation, sort of. Yeah, and like there, certainly there's, there's value in, in authentic, authenticating your beliefs. I found the, um, the uh, what I was looking for. Um, yeah, it is moralistic therapeutic deism. And it's a term that was introduced in the book Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of, of American Teenagers um, by sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Linquist Denton. So fairly recent study. Yeah. And yeah, moralistic because it, it has a moral component, even though it's vaguely moral, you know, like if you're just not Hitler. Uh, right. Deism because God is, you know, mostly indifferent, kind of kind of stays out of things. But um, gives you something to to look forward to, so long as you know you're not um, you're not like you know Jeffrey Dahmer or somebody. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. So I actually just pulled some up here too. Um, Pew Research from 2008, and it's like, uh, yeah, looks like 90. Percent are saying ninety-two percent God or universal spirit um, of adults, and then you got like women are more significantly more likely. Afterlife: three quarters of Americans believe in an afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, among the unaffiliated, about half believe in life after death. So those who don't aren't religious half still believe in life after death. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's very interesting to me. Yeah. And I'm going through this really quickly, so I might be, but three quarters of U.S. adults, they believe in heaven, but only 60% believe in hell. Huh. Mm-hmm. Some good stuff in here. <laughs> yeah. No, so, yeah, these, these studies fascinate me. And then it's, it's interesting because, you know, you know I, I, I don't dive into, to, you know, all the details or how they're conducted, but, it really is fascinating to see where, you know, and I'll, I'll try to link to some of this in the show notes if I remember where, you know, you look at the decline in specific denominational affiliation and almost to the, you know, exact inverse, the rise in uh, adoptions of things like the, a, a universal spirit, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at this right now. It's 70% of people of U.S. adults believe in angels and demons that are active in the world. Yeah, so that's really interesting because like people will not call themselves Christians, but then they'll still go out and buy books on angels. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who are super into like ritual religious practices. Like, I'm, look at Burning Man, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No, it's, I mean, it's pretty interesting actually. We're we're all like, I mean, there's this obviously super strong pull in us to. Not to make sense of the world beyond the world in front of us, and it just is always going to be manifest. I don't know. Well, it goes back to, and it's something I said on the podcast many times before. It's like you're not going to not have a religion, especially if we just define it as ultimate commitment, which I think is in a is in a bad way to look at it. So it's not like you can't you can't not be religious. The only question is, are you going to are you going to pick the right religion? Are you going to get it right or not? <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you, and. It, I mean, I think people's fear is like getting it wrong. So the idea is going so vague that you like can't get it wrong. Essentially, <laughs> believe you know what I mean? Like believe in a universal spirit and say you have your ethics be like live a good life. Yeah, which is um, against that. Well, that's well. I, I think you 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 can like because you know it's kind of the religious pluralism, right? Well, all religions are true, right? That's what the, that's what they'll say, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you know, if all religions are true, my religion says that just my religion is true, and another religion yeah. says that just that religion is true. But you say all religions are true, so which one of those is true? 
Yeah, no, I, and I mean, you get like divisive figures like Jesus is great for the, among, you know, because of the reasons where you either have to like accept that Jesus was God and you reject many other religions or you don't, in which case you reject Christianity. <laughs> yeah, you're going you're gonna to be rejecting something yeah, at, some at some point. at some point you're going to say one of these is wrong, yeah. But <laughs> so, I mean, it's nice because it sorts through things and requires more than, it requires an ultimate commitment that has more detail than be good and believe in a universal spirit, you know? Yeah, but the point you make is a really good one because, you know, people try and find that that cop out right where it's like okay i don't want to commit i I don't want to do the hard work of trying to think this through to see if anyone is right so i'm just going to become um i'm going to pick up aldous huxley's perennial philosophy book and i'm just going to run with that right yeah um which i which i was a fan of for a while you know when i was before i before i became catholic you know like uh the perennial philosophy, like, okay, yeah, it's, it's good. But then you actually start to study the world religions. Like, oh, now these make serious, often contradictory claims with one another. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not, it's no joke. Like the beliefs are pretty, um, I mean, they're, they're explicit, they're detailed. They're, a lot of them are like, you believe it or you don't, there's no real middle ground, you know? Mm. To start to like realize what you're either accepting or rejecting, what your options are. It's, it's kind of a, it's a, um, kind of like you're punting if you just step back and say, I believe in, you know, this, I believe in spirits and I believe in good and that's about it, you know? <laughs> and angels. <laughs> everybody, nobody, everybody, we reject every, nobody wants to let go of angels for some reason. Yeah, yeah. But everybody likes, everybody likes <laughs> angels. It's, it's, it's a very modern idea of the angel too. <laughs> yeah, they're amazing. <laughs> but it's, Aquinas it's also, had a lot to say on angels we'll have to do an episode on the angels at some point yeah angels are great and uh, I, I, on the other hand like it's, it's also a process I think you know like people are whatever word that people use like the spiritual journey or whatever so like you kind of find people at different points of where they are like what commitments they're willing to engage with so I'd be curious to see is like is if there's a anything about age in this in these studies like if you're an older person do you have more like detailed commitments are you more likely to be um, a member of an organized religion and be less pluralistic than when you're it wouldn't surprise me if something like that happened too you know it does. It, yeah, it does. I think that that is sort of the trend is that it's people do become a little bit more committal as they as they age. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, no, no, go ahead. You go ahead. The other thing that like, and I get this a lot, just in conversations about religions, etc. It's like, well, you know, this is how you were raised. But can we do you want to just like settle that one real quick? Because the old genetic, the old genetic fallacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. it's an annoying one to hear. Yeah. So t- yeah, because all right. So let me just state it. Right. Oh, you know, uh, uh, Peter, you're only Catholic because you're you're a Catholic. But if you were if you were born in Pakistan, you'd be a Muslim, or if you were in uh, Portland, Oregon, you would have been an atheist. So right, <laughs> that's typically the, the trope that you'll hear trotted out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it just, I mean, it's clearly wrong for many, many reasons. There's there's counterexamples of people who, I mean, I've brothers and sisters all raised in the same home with different beliefs, right? So you just have empirical counterexamples of why you, that's just not the case. And, and go ahead. It's funny that you brought this up because the, the post that I shared with you the other day, I, I responded to this um, because, you know, first off, I, w- I did not have a religious upbringing. Uh, and for a very long time, it was, it was, it was quite anti-religious. But it's really just the, 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 it's the genetic fallacy where you think that if you can explain how somebody came to hold a belief, you can explain that belief away or invalidate or validate yeah. that belief. Yeah. But how somebody comes to hold a belief is wholly independent of whether or not that belief is true or false. Mm-hmm. I might think that democracy is a superior form of government to monarchy, and I might think that just because I was brought up in America, but that doesn't say one way or another whether or not that belief is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might give us, a, yeah, give us some insight as to why you think it, but it is it's like you're saying, yeah. Anyway, but, just get that out, get that out of the way real quick. 
so, so let me ask you this because you do something that I don't know if I would be able to do. So you're, you're a professional bioethicist, you know, you're, you're, you're a professor. Now you're at a Catholic university, but I don't, if I was doing what you were doing, I don't think I could just be a philosophical ethicist. I think I would have to be a Catholic ethicist. Do you get what I'm saying? And and I guess the, the great thing about the Catholic tradition is, you know, we have the natural law. So as a philosopher, I guess you could just be like a natural law um, ethicist and pretty much all the Catholic conclusions. Um, but how do you, and now this is just like a personal question, right? Like, how do you, how do you go about it? How do you wreck? Because you are a Catholic, but you're also a philosopher, but you're doing work in, in space that is, is maybe not conducive to just people hearing of a religious uh, ethical viewpoint, even if we would both argue that it's the right one, right? So just give me some, I, your, your experience with that. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you have, you have like traditional ethical theories, which, you know, you I think in any setting, whether it's a Catholic university, Jewish university, a secular university should be presented because they capture the way that human beings kind of naturally think about um, ethical dilemmas and ethics and then uh so that i mean that is it doesn't invoke um religion but it does a lot of the concepts that are important to these ethical theories for example the intrinsic worth of the human being this these concepts overlap with what are central to religious ethical frameworks the worth of the human being like a, a huge one for Catholic um, bioethics and for uh, like a deontological approach, like a Kantian approach. Mm -hmm. So you get a lot of overlap and what it actually does is um, I always teach some, uh, I always show the overlap between Catholic uh, bioethical or Catholic ethics um, and secular ethical framework because for and it benefits people who are both religious and not religious because they see how like uh ethical frameworks that are put out by a church or by a religion they're not simply just like statements that are unconnected or non-philosophical they actually just parallel um st so-called strictly philosophical ethical frameworks so it's like I think a lot of people have the impression that ethics as, um, or I should say religious ethical frameworks, they're like these floating list of commandments that don't have any philosophical or argumentative structure. When they're, that, that are just more or less arbitrary, right? Yeah, they're like more or less arbitrary. But if you look at the actual structure of these um, religious frameworks, their structure is very similar to non-religious frameworks. Mm-hmm. You have tons of overlap between them. So it's good to be able to recognize like how to think about things and how thinking about things applies to secular and non-secular conversations. So, and, oh, no, no, sorry, don't let me interrupt. Keep going. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, uh, it's easier for bioethics too to talk about, to balance religious and non-religious things like Catholic and non-Catholic because um, or I should say it's easier in bioethics to talk about religious bioethics, Catholic bioethics, because um, a lot of bioethics traces back to the Catholic church and mm. a lot of hospitals are Catholic hospitals. So you need like, you should know Catholic bioethics, even if you are adamantly not Catholic mm -hmm. six out of, or no, what is it? Um, I want to say like, one out of every six beds in the world is hospital beds is run by a Catholic institution. It's a provider of healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, the church, despite, you know, it, it often being mired in scandal, it does do some good things, doesn't it? <laughs> largest single uh, entity or la largest single humanitarian entity in the world. Catholic so let's um let's if you wouldn't mind because people have asked me to do this this has been a requested topic where we go through a couple different ethical frameworks or systems and and explain what they are and critique them i did an episode uh so i'm doing the series on the ten commandments now and what i'm trying to do which 
I'm sure you would be very helpful on is trying to show how the Ten Commandments really do parallel the natural law or, or that which we can't not know and are often just, you know, specific um, revelations or instances of these sort of, you know, deep moral intuitions that, that we already have, even if they aren't infallible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we've, you know, had, I've had people ask about utilitarianism and deontology and, and a few, and, and like how, you know, how to kind of work through these, assess these, these various ethical frameworks. Um, so maybe you have an idea of where to start, but the thing that, you know, kind of first came up to me is, you know, immediately when we're starting with ethics, that question of this kind of intrinsic value of, of the human person, like how do you even get ethics off the ground? I mean, without just arbitrarily assuming that, which, you know, as, you know, as a philosopher, like that's, that's, that's unacceptable. You just don't arbitrarily assume anything, right? (laughs) Where is that? Where is that grounded? And how do you pull that away from metaphysics? And then like, how does that not just draw you right back into religion? And I get that a lot of uh, people are, are probably okay with just assuming that as a starting point. And that's where I, I guess I could agree with a lot of, humanist philosophers and atheistic philosophers like okay yeah if we could agree on this starting point that humans have intrinsic worth we probably could deduce a lot of the same principles um and 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 moral processes of decision making that we could agree on but my problem that i would have with you mr humanist is that you're just being completely arbitrary and thinking that humans have objective moral worth to begin with you see what i'm saying yeah i mean the question of what makes things valuable is such a difficult thing to answer in general um, because we're, we have a tendency to like, I mean, you have this question of like, what would count as proof of something being valuable? Mm-hmm. That, that in itself is, is really, really tricky because it's, it's a different kind of proof from the proof that we're used to for other kinds of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I think everyone has, a, any ethical theory has a problem of the stipulation of value somewhere. Um, so some like uh, hedonism, for example, says that, you know, the basic good in the world is pleasure and then the basic bad is its opposite pain. Mm-hmm. But I can't tell you about why your, the pleasure of you is more important than the pleasure of a cow. Or something like that you know yes mm-hmm. so that you're, you're still gonna you're still gonna get questions about how do we like what is the value of the things that have pleasure or pain in the first place mm-hmm. and that's always tricky so mm-hmm. i it's, it's it really is a really difficult question about why things are valuable and where the value comes from what what does it even mean for value to come from something else if it's mm-hmm. Are you throwing, you're throwing that, you're throwing that one at me. Oh, I'm saying, I'm saying that it's like a, uh, oh, cause I'll take it. I'm ready. <laughs> you backed it up. Um, <laughs> well, you know, yeah, like, these are like the questions that really fuel uh, debates about, about ethics. Yeah. A lot of people to consider value theory or axiology to be the same thing as ethics because it's all about value and weighing things. Yeah, and that's, I know we were talking maybe a few months ago like about Kant where he would just try and ground it all in reason. But for me, it's like when it comes to morality, you know, there's there's two things I guess we really have to consider. One are, are moral values, like what makes something morally good or morally bad? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's there's also duties. What makes something right or wrong? So if we want to say that, you know, humans have objective moral value or objective moral worth then that 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 value has to be that has to be valid and binding apart from any of our opinions preference mm-hmm. it has to be apart from us really right yeah uh, which, not which, up to us. which which, which means it can't just be grounded in our reason which Kant wanted to do right well so it's 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 not grounded in our reason the sense of reason is like a a process or or like an activity it or like uh even like a tool it's grounded in a rational nature so like the nature that we have and the way he describes the nature that we have is he uses the term rational because it's a it like distinguishes it from other natures that things have see and this right here is the, is the problem i think with kant because you have 12 different people to teach kant and none of them teach the same thing <laughs> no, they say there's there's for every like 
whatever. 40 words of Kanye, 15 different interpretations. <laughs> so true. Cause you know, when I was going through the Kant stuff, right. And like, it's so hard to make heads or tails of, but the professor was insistent on that. It's just reason is its own, is its own dictate really dictator. Right. And that it, you just have a moral obligation to, to not contradict yourself. But then she, she could of course never argue for, why you have a moral obligation not to go against your own reason, which is just, would just be circular from, right? Yeah. So it's when you use reason, it can be like ambiguous. Um, so the rational nature is we are the kind of thing that have reason. And that is the, that is the thing with the unconditional value, intrinsic value, that, that dignity. Mm-hmm. And, um, Reason itself, so when, when Kant talks about the categorical, categorical imperative, um, he is talking about not contradicting, not willing things that are contradictory or would kind of create, there's, there's different forms of the categorical imperative. But basically, yeah, not willing things that would uh, that would lead to absurd outcomes. That that would that would where the means would contradict the ends. Mm-hmm. And and just for everybody listening, we are now talking about deontology. Yeah. Um, so because so, we are rational, we have sort of access to morality, and we as rational beings kind of uh are bearers of the intrinsic value in the world that makes sense this is why the enlightenment thinkers man the enlightenment was just a bowl of soup (laughs) it's just soup (laughs) like like where is the clarity of the of aquinas and aristotle and people like kant and especially hume right i'm like man i just i get i i also get so frustrated with with the enlightenment thinkers. Um, and I do, I do try to go back to Kant. I really do. Yeah. Professor Coke, I really do try to keep going <laughs> back to him. <laughs> I just can't it, I just it really, do it. <laughs> he's like bread. I mean, there are philosophers who pretty much made their, their names in philosophy through the interpretation of Kant. He's like bread multiple interpretations of his own work. Yeah. It's, it's like you're, you're a Kantian philosopher you have your own distinct view of what Kant said, and that makes you different from another philosopher who's also Kantian with their own distinct view. I mean, when you say, that's why it's like, when you say, what did Kant say? It's like, well, he, whose view are you adopting? Mm-hmm. You know? So I guess, you know, like the thing that we certainly agree on is that if he says, yeah, there's something about human nature and something about human nature involves us being a rational animal but we would that is intrinsically valuable we would still need a a foundation for for an explanation for what makes humans intrinsically valuable and that brings us back to sort of the the objective question again if we have values and duties what are the possible foundations and this is where you know kind of way back to what you're talking about before is how can we really separate the ethical from the metaphysical because now we're we're asking an ontological question and the the only three sort of possible, um, I guess, explanations that that I think are on the table, and you can certainly fill me in if I'm missing one here, is that uh, one is that if you're a naturalist, there just there isn't any objective moral value of humans. We're just slightly more evolved primates, hurling on a through space on an infinitesimal speck of dust, doomed to individual and collective oblivion so so any value we try to ground in ourselves is, is just speciesist right we just happen to like ourselves more than anything else we don't really have objective moral value and certainly no such thing as obligations because where would that ever come from apart from ourselves so there's that which is really just nihilism which attaches which falls out of atheism then you have i think the we could have platonism in there right where there's sort of some abstract realm where things like forbearance and, and, and justice just kind of exist out there somehow, 
Um, but that I think reduces to incoherency because how would we ever like, if like I'm acting justly, how does like, what's the causal mechanism there? How do I detect? I think it's unintelligible completely. And certainly I don't have a moral obligation to an abstract object. That's just weird. And then the only other option, the only other possible option that I can think of is that it's grounded in, in God or it comes from God. God is the source of moral values, himself being the absolute standard of goodness and an obligation follow from his commandments, will, the natural law, which are just a reflection of his essentially good character, et cetera. Am I missing anything there, those kind of pool of live options? And would you I, care to I comment? Mean, it's, it's tricky because you have like, I mean, one is that when we talk about um, what it means for something to like to have obligations, an obligation is, uh, in a sense, it relates you to a good or prevents you from doing an evil, like you have obligations for things or against things. Mm -hmm. So like, I think we just have to be careful about what I would say before talking about obligations and all these things like do obligations exist? I think we can, because you said like, do we have an obligation to an abstract entity out there, you know, or like a platonic form or something like that? What, what would that even mean? Um, abs, obligations come, are secondary or derived from the goods that are already there. Mm -hmm. But we can just restrict it to asking what are the goods? Like what are the things of value in the world? And that's like the basic question. And then, and then I think those three general things, I mean, it's so like, it might be that, and this is kind of a Thomistic view is that the good is being and God is like ultimate being. Mm -hmm. oh, the, the three are connected. And, yeah, that, and that's kind of like falling out of his third way of degrees of being, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm very much partial to that way of thinking myself. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear you. But, the, but then someone could say, like, why is being good? But you see how fundamental these questions are getting at this point. You know, it's like where we have being goodness and maybe goodness doesn't tell us anything beyond what being would tell us. Well, even before I was a Catholic, I was very attracted to the Thomistic way of thinking because, you know, for Aquinas, all, anything that exists is is good in and of itself. And then God is sort of like, trying to think of the analogy, analogy here, maybe it's like, you know, sort of our moral um, sense in a way, and the things that we think are good it's kind of like a high fidelity recording where the high fidelity recording is in relation to a symphony, right? It's, it's an approximation to something where, you know, God would be that symphony or that source or that absolute standard of goodness. And then everything mm -hmm. is a degree of, uh, in relation to that perfection, right? That's kind of what you're, you're going with, with the atomistic view, right? Yeah. 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 So then the, exactly. So like the, the, the goodness in the world just is being is like, is, isness <laughs> or whatever and there's no there's no separate realm of the good that's distinct from like what the world is yep um but then in order to get like why is being good i mean how do you how how is that question even answerable you know what i mean i think it's helpful in 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 the extent that you can't really think of where being is bad but then um where it it he makes the, I think, awesome distinction. And Aquinas obviously wasn't the first one to do this. It was partly what brought Augustine away from Manichaeism too, is to, is to think more about what is evil or what is bad. And then mm. what, you, what you find is that evil or badness is just a hole where goodness should be, where something mm. that, that, that should be instantiated or existent just isn't there, right? Privations and <clears throat> et cetera, yeah. No, and it's a really interesting view of the world. It really simplifies. There's only one thing in the world, and then there's privations of that thing, mm -hmm. and then good and evil, etc. But it's all one big thing, and then that's all. It all like kind of participates in what God is, which is ultimate, pervasive, eternal being. Yes, that yes. framework 
And we're actually back to like what people think the world is about, which when I'm going to talk about like the universal spirit and just being good and just being like people are naturally attuned to that. It seems like in the statistics that we talked about earlier in the podcast, you know, it's extremely intuitive. Cause when we say like, when something is bad, we say like, it shouldn't be that way, you know? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. our language is just reflective of like those deeper things. We just tried to dissect naturally. It's reflective of that. Yeah. And, and which is actually why, we think death is bad pulling in that other part because it seems, even though it happens to everyone, it still seems like not right. It's a, it's a hole in, in the structure of the world and being. Yes. Yeah. So look at that. We were able to tie it back together. <laughs> uh, that worked out well, actually. <laughs> but, but uh, 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 yeah, I mean, it's just, my goodness, we could, we could go on forever here, but let's try and maybe like tie it back into, into something because we did definitely go drift into the metaphysical there, which is again, like we're trying to answer ethical questions, but like I always get pulled back to those metaphysical questions to try and. Oh move. yeah. Well, mm-hmm. They're one, they're really, I think essentially one of the same. You really can't answer ethical questions without metaphysical commitments in the first place. Yeah, and I guess if you, if you have enough people that could just agree on or assume a starting point, like humans have objective moral worth, sure, we can have various competing theories, but that's just assuming that there, there aren't going to be people out there who aren't moral nihilists, but there are yeah. moral nihilists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or And there are a lot of more, yeah, there are moral nihilists, and there's also people who um, think that the worth of humans is equal to the worth of all other things that can feel pleasure and pain, and that's how you get destroying the earth um, or destroying human beings for the sake of the other things in, that exist for the pleasure of the other things that exist. Something along those lines, which we were talking about before we hit record. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so maybe, I mean, that's a, a that's a whole it's nother, separate. Yeah, that's yeah, a whole yeah. nother conversation yeah. in and of itself, but all right. So I, I did uh, promise some people we would talk about at least, even if it's just briefly here, cause I don't want to keep you all night. Um, the, some various competing moral theories. We tried to, um, you know, the, the bowl of soup that is Kant. We didn't, we didn't get very far there. Um, but I, you know, it is useful, like the categorical imperative and his, his, you know, hypothetical imperative. It's really just like, you know, moral versus prudential values, I think is an easy way to think of that. But, but what about like natural law theory? Because, you know, that's always, that, that was, it was in fact natural law theory that really led me to start to consider uh, Catholicism, because I'm like, this just makes so much sense. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is just everything that the Catholic Church teaches. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I can, why don't I just say real quick about uh, consequentialism, utilitarianism, real quick, just to contrast it to deontology? Yeah. So, so yeah, we're, we're, in, cool. we're in your ethics 101 class. You're just giving us the summary and, and you know, whatever you would do. Okay, cool. Um, so, different uh, ways of Answer the question, what is the right thing to do? Uh, which is the fundamental, I guess, question of ethics. So you're wondering what, what the right thing to do is and what the wrong thing to do is. And there are different ways of uh, telling what the right thing to do is and the wrong thing to do is. Some people base it on the consequences of your action. So they say, look at the act and look at the consequences of what will happen. Mm-hmm. The consequences are more good consequences than bad consequences then do that act it's, or that act is permissible. If there's right. more bad consequences than good consequences, then um, the act's impermissible. So then, of course, you're going to ask, well, what's a good consequence? What's a bad consequence? Well, how do I know what's good and what's bad? And the classic uh, answer to that is that a good consequence is one that causes happiness to the relevant parties, and a bad one is one that causes the opposite, which is either suffering or pain. So that's um what utilitarianism is, is essentially mm-hmm. greatest happiness principle is an act that causes most happiness is the one to do um in proportion to uh like less pain correct now if you wouldn't mind since we're just kind of giving a summary and obviously we aren't utilitarians or consequentialists 
what is you know the the quick critique what's the quick thing that's that's and I think most people intuitively like feel be- like that that is wrong like they get like you, you talk utilitarianism for most people and they're like there's sort of a a natural um revulsion to it you know what I mean yeah well I mean so it has if you read like uh John Stuart Mill or Bentham there are some parts where you're like okay that makes sense you know like if you could if you have choice A and choice B and choice A is going to make a lot of people happy and, and um, nobody sad and choice B is going to make a ton of people sad and nobody happy, choice A is the right one to do. Like mm-hmm. would intuitively think that. But then the problem is, is that it, well, one problem is, is that it seems to justify if you were to make a small group really, really happy at the expense of the rest of the group, but the overall happiness of the small group outweighs the sadness of the, of the rest of the group. Mm-hmm. Take a worse example um, where like slavery, for example, if you did a calculus and figured out that more people are happy with slavery than without, then the utilitarian would be like, go with the slavery. Yep. No mm-hmm. thought for the individual and the value of the individual. It's about doing this big calculus about the group. So that's one of the problems. And I, th- I think that's, I think that is, I think that's a kill shot for utilitarianism because you know if if they're saying that what is morally good is whatever equates to the most happiness, like they've made that identity claim, and we can think of even just one example where people would be like, no, it doesn't matter how many people are made by, happy by slavery or child molestation; those things are just by themselves morally bad. Then utilitarianism just is false. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the other question. It's kind of a meta-ethical question is, is, so are there some things where if, that are so obviously morally wrong where if your theory implies that they're correct, then your theory is wrong? Because it kind of makes ethical, like the whole project of finding a good ethical theory really difficult because on the one hand, figuring out the right ethical theory should give you answers about all sorts of ethical problems. But on the other hand, if you're starting with assumptions about the right answers for these ethical problems, then you're kind of working backwards and you're checking your theory against an answer that you already know. So you walk in with a conclusion. Mm-hmm. So the, the overall project of figuring out what an ethical theory is or what the best ethical theory is, is a little bit backwards. It's like, on the one hand, what do people know is already right? But on the other hand, what's a theory that can tell us what's right? Mm-hmm. And, and that, that really is the epistemological question then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. all right. So. I mean, you just have a lot of stuff going on, you know, like a lot of questions that are always at play. Mm-hmm. So um, we, can, we can chuck utilitarianism into the trash. <laughs> okay, then you have deontology, which is um, instead of what the outcomes are, uh, the deontologist says, well, you can't really control outcomes. All you can control is your will. So like the, um, the goodwill is, is what we focus on when we say whether an act is good or bad. What did the actor will when the actor did it? And this, the will should correspond to rationality. This is where the categorical imperative comes in. Um, so you should do things that, um, you know, don't treat people as a means to an however you want to sort out what duties you have. But the classical one is you uh, obey the categorical imperative, which um, requires that you uh, will non-contradictory things um, out of respect for the, the value that inheres in, rational, in the rational nature. Yes. So there you go. But that's, so I mean, the, the thing about that is that it requires that you, you essentially describe a scenario um, and then you say, okay, can I will that, you know, like, uh, this, can I will that this be a, an imperative or that, that this be the, the commandment, so to speak, or the duty. Um, but that requires describing the scenario and the same scenario can be described in many different ways, mm-hmm. which make applying the categorical imperative, imperative actually pretty difficult because you can sort of figure out different ways of describing the same scenario so that some will produce a contradiction, others won't. So then you just have to qualify it so many times it just becomes like, well, why, why do we even bother? Yeah, exactly. So then it gets like, how general should, I, should, 
should the description be? They call it the maxim. So how general? So, so, so can you give us an example? Like for, uh, the common one is like you shouldn't steal because if, if, if everybody stole, then nobody would trust anybody and it would just reduce to absurdity is, is an idea of a categorical imperative, right? Yeah. So take the stealing one. Like um, when you steal, this is the, the kind of general idea. Stealing is contradictory because you at the same time will for something to be your property and then you have a right to it, but you're also rejecting someone else's claim to property mm-hmm. in that. So you both will that someone, that property is, is, is recognized and also not recognized. Mm-hmm. You see, so that's the contradiction. And like, I'm with Kant, like, so, like so far, like that's, that's, you know, I, I agree with him that a lot of a number of things, when you kind of run them through the Kantian system, will, will result in contradictions. I guess my problem is there's also a number of ways, like you said, that you can modify the scenarios enough where it seems like, ah, actually, that seems like an exception or it doesn't quite work. But also, like, so what if I, like, like maybe I just want to contradict myself. Why do I have any obligation to be non-contradictory, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so for him though, the the contradictory thing is interesting because it is it like collapses on itself. It's not even like just doing a bad thing. It's doing something that is so contrary to the to what you. It essentially means you are like pulling yourself in opposite directions. Like there's something inherently wrong with it. Exactly like you said, you could just say, what if there is no, nothing wrong with contradictions or anything like this? But it is a pretty profound um, criticism of an action to say that you're willing opposite things and you can't, you can't hold those two things. Your act is, is like fundamentally flawed because of fiction. So it's kind of nice like that, you know what I'm saying? It is, and I think it I think it works for a number of general instances, but it doesn't work well enough because of what you said before, that there's instances where it's like, uh, actually, no, and then we just need to qualify it, and then we need to qualify it again, and we need to right. qualify it for this instance and that instance. And then eventually it just seems like, well, why are we even bothering, right? Yeah, so then, exactly. So if, say, uh, you should not steal, even if it will save your life, like say you come into a, you find a cottage in the woods and it's clearly somebody else's property, but you're about to die. Mm-hmm. Like, can, is that now a new maxim? Yes. <laughs> right. You know? Because it's like, a new scenario, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then what are you going to do? It, it memorize encyclopedia upon the encyclopedia of, of Kantian maxims? No, I know exactly. And, and it really, and Kant wants to formulate. So he gives different formulations of the categorical imperative that help you kind of, uh, run scenarios through this little machine of rationality, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, I mean, it is, you know, difficult. I think he thinks it can do a lot. He has a whole uh, metaphysics to that. He, I mean, he's one of the ones who really tried to get a whole worldview. Some people um, think that he irreparably screwed up philosophy. Others think he's the greatest philosopher ever. Yeah, I'm more I'm more inclined to to that first position. I don't think he did. I think I think he tried to he tried to respond to the skepticism, but I think and I think Adler summarized this well in his book Ten Philosophical Mistakes. I think he nailed it. Except for he tried to like build coherency out of the previously incoherent skeptical position yeah. rather than going back to where the mistakes were made by the skeptics themselves. Yeah, I think I think that's a pretty good uh, assessment because I mean he he was really faithful to having a coherence. I mean his project he didn't publish until he was like fifty eight. His project was just like years and years and years in the making, and it really was an attempt to kind of address all of those pieces you talked about earlier: epistemology, metaphysics, ethics, morality and put them together in one like nice cohesive project but i think he um gave too much to earlier precedents that he didn't have to and then it, you know 
if your foundation is a little off, the whole house is going to be a little crooked. So I think that's what happened. All right. So what's what? Sorry. So utilitarianism. That's not going to work. Deontology, way too messy, too too many interpretations, (laughs) too many qualifications, too many problems. Kind of doesn't really have the ontological foundations either. Um, Let's give let's give one more. Do you want to talk? Um, We could do a whole episode on natural law theory. I think we should do a whole episode on natural law by itself. But what's if we were to throw one more out there? Yeah. Okay. Um, We can talk about natural law real quick. Uh, Usually trace back to a client. Um, and this is the natural, the moral law as opposed to like the legal philosophy stuff, but the natural law, uh, it starts, it basically ties in morality to the metaphysics of the human person, what a a human being is. Um, and human beings are a certain way and we're, uh, essentially, you know, we live in community and we're able to reason and our, the way that we behave should correspond with the, the mandates of reason, the mandates of what we are metaphysically, mm-hmm. human beings. Real kind of quick, but that's the way it works. Yeah, so, so I guess the idea here is that um, you know, we, are, we are made in the image and, and likeness of God. Aquinas would certainly affirm that. Um, mm-hmm. But even though we could get a lot of, I guess, the foundations for natural law, even just from, from Aristotle, but... And, you know, like you, the thing that's nice about natural law is you can do so much of the, I guess, the ethical work proximately just by looking at the nature of humans, even apart from, from the metaphysics like deontology or something like that, except for mm-hmm. I would say it's, it's much more consistent and coherent. Um, and just looking at teleology of like, okay, well, what are we, what are we directed at? You know, what, what is our aim? Well, we're, we're rational animals. Mm-hmm. We use our reason to seek what is good for us, which you said, right? Like working within, yeah. uh, you know, the dict- the dictates of reason. But then, of course, Aquinas will step in and say, like, well, look, reason is clearly searching for the ultimate good, which is God. Yes. So, so like, we don't get to, you know, decide what our final end is. Like, our final end is decided for us by the types of creatures we are. We only get to decide if we're going to actually choose to pursue that final end or not, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. So the when you when you talk about when you answer the question of what is human nature what are human beings you're answering the question of what is our end and that's how all what is good is directed towards our end and we can use reason to it to work towards that end but also built into this whole framework is uh the end has to it can be known by us but it's something that science can't answer it's it's a essentially a theological question mm-hmm it goes into, you know, kind of um, being created by God and our, our aim is to be essentially reunited with God in a sense. And what's, what's always was attractive to me about natural law is, you, you, you know, you, you look at um, that, that there's a teleology um, in, within the entire world. So to take the, the stock example, like the, the, the directedness of, of an acorn is is to become an oak. It is good for an acorn to, to become an mm. oak, right? Um, and once you kind of see what things are pointed at or, or supposed supposed to be, then we can say, okay, whatever promotes the the acquisition of that end, or whatever it, you know, or whatever doesn't frustrate the achievement of that end, right? That's how we can start to make decisions of of good or bad, right and wrong. Um, now it's not necessarily like it's not evil that an that an acorn doesn't become a tree because because an acorn doesn't have reason so it's not a moral agent right but when when you have moral capacities when you have reason then you are a moral agent but it's still better for an acorn to become a tree just right natural law and then like we can just deduce so many things from there not just like our final end but also uh sexual ethics um hard questions, abortion, euthanasia, like you, you can, what I lo- found attractive about natural law is how you can just drive it through consistently on pretty much, at least I would say, I would say everything. I, I haven't really found too many places where I've, I've, um, but I'm going to let, yeah, you, you take over. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I think it's, it's a really, uh, you know, it captures, it's very Aristotelian too, just the general, um, the, the framework it is, 
uh, it is Aristotelian with the idea of the end and then the good is towards the end and then asking what is uh, the proper end of the human being. So that's, once that starts to shift around though, like what is the proper end of the human being? Um, that's how you get all sorts of different, different answers. So like, obviously moving the end around means you move everything that the end implies around too. Mm-hmm. People disagree about what the end of the human being is, then you're going to get serious disagreement about the, the ethics of how human beings should behave. So that's one of the, you know, the features of it. it yes. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think that's sort of the, uh, a good stopping point where we can pick up next time because that's kind of where we are today. We're in this relativistic culture where people think things are good just because you want them to be. But Aquinas and Aristotle would, would say something quite the opposite, that some things just are good by their very nature and the types of natures that we as humans have. And those are the things that you should want. Correct? <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, yeah. Yep. I mean, it's the things that you should want, and uh, most people, because they, I mean, everyone is a human being, but most people are naturally inclined towards these things anyway, and the evil things we do are really perversions of a good drive that we have. We're just trying to achieve the right end, but doing it the wrong way. Yeah, a good example of a hole where something good should really be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Good. All right. Well, that gives us the topic. Now, in the next, on the next episode, we will start to build out natural law theory for the people. Sounds good for the people. Excellent, Professor Coke. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Pat. We hope you enjoyed the program, and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day. <laughs>